Aaron's going to talk us through all of Jeremiah at this point. Aaron, take it away. So as you guys were reading Jeremiah, how confused did you get in this portion? Very to quite very. It just sounded very familiar. It seemed like we were hearing some of the same... It's like I was listening to your sermons over and over. Oh, yikes. Not your sermons, but, us, you know, as if a someone person's. was reading. Yeah, someone's sermons. Yeah. yeah, using the second person for the third there. Yes. Sure. Hopefully this has been just as confusing for <laughs> our listeners as I felt reading Jeremiah because the chronology of everything is way out of whack. So even though some of the content is the same, they're mixing up kings, like early kings and late kings. You know, it's just really complicated. I don't have a lot that I want to say about Jeremiah (gasps) other than... What? I know. Other than to point out that many of the narrative portions in this section are not chronological. So that might help people as they're reading Jeremiah. But I did reflect on the fact that Jeremiah is, I think, a precursor to Christ in this way. He represents God to the people of Israel, and he does so with words of judgment and salvation while being personally involved in the situation. Jeremiah felt pain for these people. He was persecuted by these people. He embodied God's presence among them, we could say, and declared God's word to them, both of salvation and judgment. And I I just saw over and over again, people like Jeremiah, Hosea too, show that God is not distanced from his people even during times of judgment. Like he's with them, and Jeremiah shows us God's tender heart for his people and suffering alongside and for his people in a way that points to Jesus who does this more fully and finally. But I thought even some of the things that Jeremiah did, like buying this plot of land and then going away for some time, you know, I think Jesus in some way does some of these same things where he takes certain actions that makes clear that his kingdom will be established, is being established. And the things he does and that he calls his disciples to don't make sense if you don't believe that's true. So Jeremiah, when he bought that field that we talked about last time, it's like the guy in Jesus's parables who sells a field, um, sorry, who buys a field because he knows there's treasure in it. And I think when you look more and more at Jeremiah and then think about Jesus and his parables and who he is, you kind of see Jesus in Jeremiah just early on. I hadn't thought about that. Chapter 33 was encouraging, I thought. Did you have thoughts on 33? How did you find it encouraging? Well, it's, I guess, just promise from God that even though everything's going to hell in a handbasket, or so they say. He's promising good things. I think you mean gone to Babylon in a handbasket. Yikes. Ooh. Gone to Babylon in a basket. The rivers in a basket? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Too much of a stretch. 
Yeah, I mean, chapter 33 talks about Israel's restoration, right? Right. Because, I mean, uh, verse 10 and 11, this is what the Lord says in this place, which you say is a ruin without people or animals, that is, in Judah's cities and Jerusalem streets that are a desolation without people, without inhabitants, without animals, there will be heard again a sound of joy and gladness, the voice of the groom and the bride, the voice of those saying, give thanks to the Lord of armies, for the Lord is good. His faithful love endures forever as they bring thanksgiving sacrifices to the temple of the Lord, for I will restore the fortunes of the land as in former times. It was just very encouraging that even though everything looked awful, because it was awful, there was hope in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I highlighted it in green. Why green? It's a nice shade of green, don't you think? Yeah, it kind of maybe symbolizes flourishing and prospering and the land growing back into its former glory. Yeah. See, I wasn't even thinking that when I highlighted it. It was probably just like subconscious. I just had to highlight it in green. Yeah, it's part of the metaphorical conceptual world that you live in. Yeah. Where green equals good. Mm-hmm. Seriously. That's how that's how like our our whole existence is structured in these sorts of ways. And sometimes we operate in it without even realizing it. Like why is up generally good and down is generally bad? Unless you want to get down with it. Yeah. That's good. Or unless inflation is up or right. something like that. Like there are weird situations where it breaks the conceptual mold. But often we just operate in these conceptual worlds and it works for everybody. What did you guys think of chapter 35? Where Ooh. we had this kind of, I don't know if blessing's the right word, but kind of this, I don't know how to say it, but where the Rechabites were following some weird commands from their forefathers and... Jeremiah's message from God was that, you know, they're at least obeying something. So we're going to bless them and they're going to be able to come become priests or something. And, you know, the king and the people are not obeying God's command. So they're going to be judged. What did you guys think of that? It seemed kind of like a strange story. Yeah. The way that I took this is that God has identified a group of people who are obeying their ancestors, who have no divine authority. And what God is showing them is that it is possible for humans to obey something. So Israel... It's pretty basic. Yeah, Israel, who has divine authority and a covenantal relationship and direct obligation to God, can complain that his commands are too grievous or difficult or they can complain that, you know, God isn't good enough, so they're going to follow after other gods. And even the way that we think about good and evil, sometimes we might say, well, we're human, so it's just not possible for humans to obey God all of the time. But God's saying, look, here's an example from your experience of people who can purpose to do something, and it doesn't require divine intervention. You're overcomplicating this thing. Just obey and walk in the way of your ancestors who walked in the way of the Lord. So he's kind of breaking down one of their excuses. I think so. Nice. Well, like I said, I don't have much more to say about Jeremiah. He got stuck in a cistern, I sank got, down in the mud. Wait, Some I people got, rescued I, him. That's I got cool. stuff to say. I mean, that was kind of cool. 
Um, or awful. Now, who did that remind you of? A notable character. A notable character who also found favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. Joseph. Correct. Yes. Took the words out of my mouth. Yep. You knew that was coming, AJ. Obviously. So in chapter 39, we see a couple of really fun names. My favorite, Nergal Sharizer. I think my audio Bible said it better, but every time it read it, I kind of chuckled. What do you think of those names, Aaron? Wait, ask me in like 15 seconds. I want right. to look it up. We also have Nebuzaradan, Nebushazban, yeah, and Nergal Sherezer. Sherezer? I think it's Nergal Sherezer. Do you want to know what Nergal Sherezer means? Etzer means? Yeah. Wait, can I guess? Yeah. He was the chief soothsayer, which I, I don't know what a soothsayer is. I'm going to say it's like a fortune teller or something like that. Yeah, that could be. I'm just guessing. So this guy's name means may Nurgle protect the king. Ooh. Good old Nurg. wonder why that name didn't perpetuate on Nurgle. <laughs> That's a good name. Nurgle. Nurgle. Yeah, it's kind of fun to say, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Have you ever <laughs> known a Nurgle? I haven't. Two things. Jeremiah 42. Um, people go to Jeremiah and they want some counsel from him. So he and they're like, we'll do whatever you say that God tells you. They don't. Spoiler alert. But one thing I found interesting, Jeremiah, he's God's dude. The people go to him for a word from the Lord. And then it says, at the end of 10 days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and he summoned people whose names I can't pronounce. But anyways. Even God's dude, it took 10 days for him to get a word from the Lord. So that spoke to me as far as be patient as you wait to hear from God about things in your life. Because even Jeremiah, it took 10 days. 10 days is a long time. It, think about I it. I did briefly think about this, was that 10 days seemed like a long time to get this reply. Yeah. And he had like as direct a line as anybody to God, and God's like, I'll get back to you in 10 days. Yeah. So patience as you wait upon the Lord. Because that is the saying, wait upon the Lord. 10 days could be longer. Could be shorter. But if it's not, don't be alarmed. That was a word of encouragement I had from Jeremiah 42. It kind of fits with the message, too, that God gave them after waiting and being patient. You know, if they wait and they obey, you know, God will eventually build up the nation again. He'll plant them and not uproot them. And, you know, it seems like he would undo some of the punishment that they would be experiencing soon. He'll rescue them from the power that's enslaving them or will. Yeah. And he'll be merciful to them. Uh, moving forward to Jeremiah 44, another thing. So these people, they're like, we weren't following God and everything was great. We were 
What were they doing? Something they were burning incense to the Queen of Heaven. To the Ashtoreth. Is that what it is? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So there are different names for this goddess, goddess of heaven. You know, this is where Ishtar is connected as well. So different pagan deities are kind of identified as the same character in that's this one. Hmm. Yeah, so they liked their life way better when they were burning incense to this queen of heaven or whatever you said. And then they kind of bail on uh, the true God because of it. Because they said our lives were better. We were more blessed and more flourished while we were serving the queen of heaven. So we're going back to her. So I thought that was interesting. You can't... Uh, you can't have the your current flourishing or not flourishing determine what the truth is. And it's not the end-all, be-all for who God is. You might be going through a rough patch. Can't bail for the queen of heaven when you're going through a rough patch. It's not, it's not directly connected. You know what I mean? Is that why we would um, shun prosperity gospel? That kind of ties in with this, right? I don't know how to answer your question because I feel without being dismissive that it's a bit of a non sequitur question. Because they're like, all right, our lives aren't great and we're trying to serve the true God. We're going back to serve the queen of the heavens because our life was better then. Yep. And what I'm saying is you can't equate earthly flourishing with serving God correctly. You, they're not like hand in hand. So I'd say things a little bit differently. I All would right. say that in Deuteronomy, Moses warned the people that during times of flourishing, they would be tempted to attribute that flourishing to other gods and then start worshiping those other gods. Do, is that Deuteronomy 8? <laughs> I like the now three episode reference to Deuteronomy 8. Wait. But wait, well, no, I but was being it is serious. actually connected to Deuteronomy 8. Oh, I was being serious because that's one of yep. my favorite chapters Be- of the Bible. God tells them when you do that, I'm going to make you go hungry. Yeah. And this is like the hungry to the nth degree exile. So, dude, did you do that on purpose? There's a song called The Nth Degree. No, <laughs> uh. but I'm glad that you referenced it. Um, So I wouldn't say that it's connected to the way that prosperity gospel people preach things. It would be connected to the way that people idolize things. So instead of saying, God has blessed me with this job that's providing for our family and worshiping him and thanking him for it, you start to say, I'm the one providing this. And if I can sell my soul to my job, I can secure this forever. So there's kind of an idolatry of money and work and prosperity. We just don't have a pagan deity that we connect it to now. We worship ourselves and whatever it is that we can get out of something. Prosperity gospel, I think, does something different. And they say that God promises to do things that he's not promising to do. The only other thing I would want to draw attention to in Jeremiah, I guess I could say two things. In Jeremiah 39 verse 10, This captain of the guards from Babylonia, Babylon, gave the poor people vineyards and fields. So these are people who owned nothing. And if you remember throughout the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah has berated people. I think, you know, 
rightly on God's behalf, he's condemned them for failing to take care of the poor. So then it's somewhat ironic as the, the way that God brings justice for the poor is by exiling the rich and giving land to these poor people who own nothing. So it is interesting how very often God's judgments bring about a poetic justice or an ironic justice. Is this like Robin Hood? Steal from the rich, give to the poor? Not quite. All right. Finally, as we get to chapter 46 and we enter into the final stages of Jeremiah, we get into the OANs, the Oracles Against the Nations. Yeah, so we'll pick up this Oracles Against the Nations section as we finish up Jeremiah next week. And for those of you who will be reading, I would point you to look for a surprise in this Oracle Against the Nations section, particularly as you get to the end of the letter. As we transition now to 2 Timothy, we encounter one of Paul's final letters, if not his very last letter before he died, written to Timothy, encouraging him in the faith to persevere, to continue on in the ministry, carrying on Paul's legacy. AJ, as you read this letter, what encouraged you and challenged you as you take up this letter that's really intended for all of us, as indicated by the final line of the benediction, offering grace and peace to you all, not just to Timothy. I did kind of think that a lot of what was said, I tried to keep in mind that, you know, Paul probably was thinking this was going to be one of his last letters, if not his last one. I think we have to be cautious against becoming overly sentimental about this last letter of Paul because Paul didn't know that this was going to be his last letter. You know, even That's though true. he was nearing the end of his life, sure. and certainly we could become sentimental about that. I think mm-hmm. it's unhelpful for people to say Paul knew that he was going to die. And so he wrote this last letter as if Paul had right. terminal illness and knew like the doctors gave him a week to live. Right. That's not the case. So we should avoid be reading it in that way. Guess Shriner's wrong. You know, actually, this is something that Ligon Duncan commented on at the Together for the Gospel I went to in 2012, where he was recounting a scenario where he had been talking about Second Timothy that way, and R. Albert Moeller Jr. the third told him he was wrong for the very reasons I just gave you. Nice. Yeah, it makes sense. So that stuck with me. I haven't thought about it any more than that, but it seemed to me that we should probably understand Paul knows he's nearing the end of his life in ministry, but it's not a deathbed letter by any means. But he does refer to his own experience and his example and points Timothy to continue to follow in the way that he has been living throughout his ministry. Exactly. Encourages Timothy in that way. Yeah. Yeah, and I think some of us or some of you who aren't pastors might say, this letter isn't for me. And I'd want to say two things to you. First, as I already commented in that final line, grace be with all of you. It's in the plural there. So it seems like Paul's intending for this letter to circulate beyond Timothy to include a lot more people. And it's in the Christian canon. So it's a letter for all Christians, not just pastors. But beyond that, I'd also want to say, that Timothy isn't a pastor. So 
we should take note of that. He's someone who's carrying on the gospel ministry of Paul, and there's a sense in which all of us are doing that. Maybe not in the same way that Timothy did, but certainly the instructions given to him have relevance for all of us, regardless of our vocational or non-vocational ministry status. As we move on to Titus, I'd just point our listeners to my sermon series on Titus. It's a very short series. We did that in, I believe, 2021, though it may have been 2020. So this book does seem, or this letter does seem very similar to 1 Timothy, but there's a little bit of a difference where Timothy was working with a church that had been established for a little while, a decade maybe, and then Titus is working with a newly established church, right? Is that right? Yeah, it's hard to say. There's that phrase in chap- in verse 5 of chapter 1. The CSB takes it as the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. And that seems like the churches have been established and they have not yet matured. So these would this kind of pictures a newer church setting. I think the ESV translates it as to put in order what remained. And in that instance, it seems like the churches had been there, but now they've already started to deteriorate. So now he's coming in to revive whatever was left over. So I don't know which one is correct. I slightly lean toward the ESV rendering. Maybe, Matthew, you could read that since you have the ESV in front of you. I took it as churches had existed and fallen out of repair. And we use this text to kind of drive part of our work in the church revitalization effort. Uh, But I preached this back in the fall of 2020. We have a few sermons, four or five sermons from that series. That might be helpful. Chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. As we move now to Philemon, Matthew Vitamin, what did you take away from this really brief letter? It's the shortest of Paul's letters, right? It is indeed, and in fact marks the conclusion of Paul's letters in the New Testament canon. It also marks the end of his letters in the Hebrew LXXX. (laughs) For our listeners, that is not a thing. So if you are thinking that it is, just know that Matthew is telling a joke. We read this really brief letter from Paul to Philemon that addresses a really complicated situation. AJ, could you give us the lowdown on what's going on in Philemon? Yikes. So apparently... that I think that would actually be his response when he opened the letter from Paul. He'd yeah. scan it real quick and he'd be like, oh, yikes. Yeah, I think so. But did the letter go to him or did it go to the church? And this was read. Well, I think it went to him. But as you'll know in the in verse 2, there are other people who are addressed in the letter. Right. And it seems like this letter would have been read in front of the whole assembly. How do you think that made this Philemon guy feel to have this personal sort of letter read in front of his house church? Yeah, I think it kind of depends on the personality of Philemon, because if he's a good sport, he's probably like, 
oh, darn it, Paul did it again. He's found a way to, like, make sure that this happens because, like, I'm reading this letter out loud. He's saying, I'm not telling you to do anything, but I know kind you're going to do the right thing. And everybody's listening to this. Right. So, yeah, I think it's probably hard to know exactly how he responded, but part of me wants to say that he gave a Gandalf-like chuckle and then complied with everything that was said. So because this is a personal letter with a very specific situation, some people say that this letter has no relevance to us today. So is that true? No, it would not be in the LXXX Hebrew if that were true. (laughs) More seriously, it's in the canon of scripture. Right, that's what I was getting at. Okay. Well, in that case, Matthew is exactly on point here. It's included in the canon of scripture, and it's addressed to more than Philemon. And I think even if we say it's addressing a particular situation, it gives us an example of how to navigate future novel situations that have some level of genuine comparison to this text. Everything that Paul gives in terms of his instruction and content of this letter is written from a thoroughly Christian and therefore theological perspective. For that reason, we can't dismiss this as a common, ordinary, everyday letter that has no relevance for us. Maybe this is an opportune time to note that there are two sermons on this text on our church website. So if people are looking for more, they can find it there. The second one's rubbish, so don't even listen. Yeah, the second one I was not really pleased with at all. And the first one was pretty much just application. Which I thought was good for this podcast. So a little backstory on that. The sermon I preached before this one was my review sermon for Esther, which was pretty much a lecture on the LXX, MT, and English translations of Esther. And it was like 45 minutes long. I thought it was interesting. But in the sermon review that week, I got thrown down on so hard for teaching a lecture instead of preaching a sermon. So then Mm -hmm. I responded the very next week by pretty much having a 90% application to 10% explanation sermon because they got on me for a 90% explanation, 10% application in the previous one. So if you go back and listen to those two side by side, you'll hear very different preaching styles and aims. So getting back to what you were talking about before, Paul isn't giving explicit instructions here, but he's kind of giving advice and hinting at what he thinks is right and what it, you know, he kind of just suggests that he knows that they'll act in the correct Christian way. And as you said, you know, a lot of the the tone is is very loaded with Christian words. So there's a lot that we can take from this letter. Which makes sense because for us, we've read all of Paul's other letters and it seems like, you know, this isn't Paul's point is to address a bunch of issues. It's just this one. Yeah, and and I would say that Paul does talk about the gospel here and he frames everything within the transforming work of the gospel. And he essentially points out that the gospel forms a community and it transforms the relationships of these people. So now they're like family, regardless of their social situation. So that's why he can talk about Onesimus as his brother, as he writes to Onesimus's quote-unquote owner, 
master, who is also his brother. So the gospel transforms our relationships, not just in theory or theology, but actually in the way they work themselves out. And that's what Paul is calling for here. Because these church members, this church family, those relationships are now involved in Philemon's moral decision-making. Yeah, exactly. By addressing this letter to Philemon, but including the whole church, there's now a sort of community of faith responsibility in which Philemon will have to carry out his response to the letter. So is that instructive for us today in in our church family relationships and folding other people into our lives? Yeah, I think it's instructive by example, maybe not in doing the same thing where we would in a family discussion forum, say, AJ, Matthew is looking for a place to live, and we're not saying that you should let him live there, but we know that you're going to do the right thing. Like, I don't think it's that kind of an example, but it is a good example for us to think about how the gospel would reframe the way we relate to each other in our decision-making by bringing it into the purview of the household of faith. How should people think about family relationship terms as far as for people who have not had a good family and don't know what what that really should look like? Yeah, I think sometimes people can be put off by family terminology because their own family relationships have been troubled. And what I would want to say to that person is, you're not alone. A lot of people have had troubled family relationships. And I say that Two out of the three podcasts people on this podcast have had troubled family relationships. And when when you feel that, and, and Matthew's the one who hasn't, pretty much, to clarify in case Cindy's listening. But the the like bit of pushback that you might give or the that bristling you might feel, all that is is an indication of a deeper longing for a true and better family than what you've experienced. And Jesus calls those who believe in him and obey him his family. And that means that you're added to a much larger family. So not only do you have Jesus as your older brother, you have other Christians who can become brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. And even though there's not a biological gap that's filled there, true family is not really biological in the whole way that the Christian faith in terms of family is talked about is not biological. That's why Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again because your biological connection to Abraham is no good. Mm. And then when we look at families who adopt children, that's a true family, even though there's not a genetic relationship. And I'd suggest the same is true and even more so of the faith family of Christ. So if you've had a troubled family relationship, that the answer is not to reject all familiar terms, whether it's father or mother or brother or sister or son or daughter, but to embrace them redefined now by the gospel among the people of God. I think it's encouraging that Jesus, you know, he didn't have the perfect family and there was a lot of criticism of his family and he knew people that in his ministry did not have a good family situation. And just like you said, you know, he came to, create a new community of family members and redefining it in light of the gospel. Thank you for joining us on the Resurrection Church Podcast. 
week 44. If you have any other questions about Resurrection Church or would like any more information, you can visit us at resurrectionmn.org. Make sure you forever delete this.